This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hello, welcome to Think Health. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. This week we celebrated International Women's Day, so we'll be taking a look at the role gender plays in healthcare. We'll also be looking at why more people are turning to chiropractic care to treat their headaches and migraines and... No one there that could help them. Now there's a skilled midwife who can provide the care that they need and the women are responding. Papua New Guinea is due to have another survey of its health and its demographics in the next year or so and that will tell us... What it's like to educate midwives in Papua New Guinea. Caregiving, unpaid work, longer lifespans, these are the issues that impact many women in Australia's health system. The Australian Bureau of Statistics says that women account for 71% of primary carers of older people and people with disabilities, and mothers spend twice as much time caring for young children than fathers. Informal care means a lower income, and the combination of this means women often don't look after themselves. They are also living longer than their male counterparts and living longer with chronic disease. So how does our health system accommodate the needs of women? Michelle DiGiacomo has been asking this very question. She's a senior research fellow in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Um, well, gender is often overlooked in healthcare. There's a lot of the one-size-fits-all approach to services. Um, but gender recognises the unique experiences and needs of men and women. So it's not to say that one is more important than the other, but it's just recognizing and appreciating that there are some differences. Your recent research has looked at how chronic conditions in particular affect women. What sort of chronic conditions are we talking about? So chronic conditions such as uh, cardiovascular disease and diabetes, arthritis, osteoporosis, dementia, depression, um, cancer is becoming a chronic disease, and so on. So those c- types of conditions that last for, you know, usually more than six months, and it just becomes a, something that people need to self-manage in a way, in addition to dealing with health services for support. Those chronic conditions, then they're not, uh, they don't target one gender, they target both right. genders. Mm-hmm. Why women in particular? Why do they need extra help in these services? Well, what we've found and what the research tells us is that women tend to live longer than men, and when they do that, they usually live with a bit more disability. Um, So as a result of some of the roles that they have in society. So you've talked about the societal role that women play. What what role do the, the majority of women have in society? Women are predominantly the... Um, caregivers, you know, throughout their lives, but particularly in middle and older ages, um, they are caregiving for family, friends, you know, spouses, parents. So this is something that just continues, and they don't often identify as a caregiver or a carer, 
um, but rather it's something that is part of their natural roles and their relationships. So that's one of the important things that they do, and they take on a lot of that work that's informal, it's unpaid, and it means that they sometimes aren't looking after themselves. Women are living longer. We all know that men men die much younger than women. Are these women then living by them themselves, and how does that how do they go then accessing healthcare services? Yeah, many older women uh, live alone, um, and you know, depending on their access to transportation, their uh, mobility, their physical mobility, and just general well-being, also their social networks and their ties and that will really have an impact on whether or not they can engage just even with society and with health services and seek care when needed. So how can health services better interact with women? Well, what we found in the research is that women report that they're feeling rather disempowered by some of their interactions with health providers, um, dismissed, avoided. These were some of the Uh, experiences they talked about, just not feeling empowered and able to advocate for themselves and their own care. Sometimes it's because they really haven't been orientated or socialized to be assertive and, you know, prominent in those healthcare discussions. Some women from, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds uh, might even feel intimidated, may not understand the language that's being used even if they have um, a level of English where they can communicate. Sometimes that's uh, misunderstood by health professionals, that they understand what's really going on. So health services need to be tweaked a little bit more to address, you know, half the, half the population. Mm. What, what more can be done? So some of the findings from our research indicate that There needs to be more development of programs for particularly women from culturally, linguistically diverse backgrounds. So within a framework of cultural beliefs and consideration of these gender issues, using interpreters more in healthcare uh, and bilingual health workers and community educators is really important. We found that although some health professionals are using them, not enough and not all. And yes, there is a shortage of interpreters in healthcare, but um, it's really important to facilitate women's voice and empowerment. Um, Health services can improve on facilitating a welcoming, comfortable, and safe environment, and develop and sustain partnerships and networks. Um, Also offer respect, flexibility, responsiveness, and just to generally be mindful of varied contexts and tailoring to the needs of different groups of women, women in general, um, considering, you know, what's going on, what are their circumstances, what's going on in their lives, um, so as not to impose a blanket, maybe, service or program that they can't access, um, that they don't feel comfortable using, something like that. Michelle DiGiacomo, Senior Research Fellow in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Not only do women have trouble with the health system, but so too do migrant women. Della Menizzi is a PhD student at the University of Technology Sydney and Western Sydney University. She has been studying what Filipino migrants, and Filipino women in particular, find challenging about Australia's healthcare system. 
Unfortunately, there's not much research done on uh, Filipino-Australian, the health of Filipino-Australians. But uh, there have been increasing incidence of chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, cancers, and uh, mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, and all that. When we're talking about mental health issues, I know from previous stories that we've done on the program, people from other countries in in their home country, mental health issues may not be talked about as much. So when Mm -hmm. they come to Australia, they find that continues. They find it difficult to talk about. How do Filipino women feel about discussing their mental health issues with health practitioners? They are very reticent about approaching uh, mental health services because there's a huge stigma in our community about mental health issues, uh, mental health illness. Um, And so most of them, most of us, don't approach um, health services regarding mental health issues. So that's a bit difficult for Filipino women or Filipino migrants in general to consult health professionals. You mentioned earlier that uh, English is a barrier, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? In my interview with the Filipino women in, my, in the research, uh, many of them say, said that uh, they, have, they lack confidence in their English language skills. English in the Philippines uh, is taught in school, and it's used as a medium of in, um, government and business transactions. It is not a language we use every day. So there is a social connotation that if you speak English, you are educated uh, of a higher social status. And so many are reluctant to admit that they cannot speak English, or some will pretend that they understood for fear of being thought of as stupid or, or uneducated. And they mentioned this in the in their interviews. And I think one one woman was saying that they mm-hmm. they nod their head to whatever the doctor's saying, even yes. if they don't understand it. Yes. So they understand, but they could not expound. They could not explain in English. So, uh, and one older woman said that they have only little English. And if in time of stress, of illness, or emergency room presentations, for example, they often forget. They're English, so they fumble for words to explain their symptoms. So English is a barrier to accessing health services. Are there any other barriers that you've identified for migrant women in particular that need to be overcome? Yeah, uh, cultural attitudes and beliefs, for example. Many uh, of the women, for example, one woman uh, who has uh, uncontrolled diabetes and taking insulin, and she says she's okay because she's not bedridden, she can still walk around, she's not flat on her back. And with this kind of attitude, she's less likely to seek seek self-care as an important priority. So another is, for example, a cultural clash on health practices. Like uh, one of the women uh, recalled that uh, when she was giving birth, she was asked to shower after 30 30 minutes, and this is such a no-no in the Philippines because of the hot and cold belief that showering will uh, reduce physical uh, resistance to illness. And one lady was saying that there are many illnesses 
in the Philippines that are difficult to English size, you know, difficult to explain in English to health professionals. With that in mind, what can health professionals do to assist Filipino migrant women in the healthcare system? Yes, uh, first is uh, being aware of the patient as an individual because uh, there are many zones of grey in the English language skills, for example, of of Filipino women. Uh, there's a general uh, impression that uh, those from the Philippines can speak English. And so many health profes- professionals take it for granted that they can speak in English. And so they speak so fast or they speak in jargons and they can they they are not understood and yet they will not say the patients will not say that I I don't understand because of the social implications of being able to speak English. Uh another is being mindful of the patient like observing uh the body language uh is there hesitancy there because they are very hesitant to question health professionals because they are seen as experts so you don't question experts otherwise they they will be offended so they don't want to offend healthcare professionals and i think an important thing is to take time to make patients feel comfortable and to assure patients that uh, they they can ask questions without offending the healthcare professional Stella Manizzi, PhD student in the Faculty of Health at UTS and Western Sydney University, speaking there about the experience of Filipino migrants in Australia's healthcare system. You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. It's one of the most common symptoms of pain. But why are they underdiagnosed? The headache can be a result of a number of things. Lack of sleep, stress, a head injury, or even a few too many G&Ts from last night. Sometimes they're a one-off, but when they're recurring, people look for further treatment. But one treatment many people overlook is chiropractics. Craig Moore is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Health at UTS. He spoke with Jake Morecambe about chiropractic care for headaches and why we underdiagnose them. Yes, well, headaches are often underdiagnosed and undertreated, particularly in medical settings. There's a few reasons for this. So some headache patients have never actually sought medical care, and a lot of these people just tend to treat acute attacks if and when they occur uh, outside of medical care. And then some have sought medical care but have not been terribly happy with the results in terms of the effectiveness or side effects with the medications and safety concerns. And then the third reason is, in fact, to do with the medical doctors themselves. A fairly high percentage of medical doctors still don't necessarily take the time to specifically diagnose a patient's headache type. So what sort of types of headaches are there? Well, there's a huge number of headache types and subtypes uh, listed uh, in the International Classification of Headache Disorders, Um, but perhaps the most common recurrent headache types are tension headache, migraine, and what's called cervicogenic headache, which is just a fancy name for neck headache. But tension headache is huge. It's the most commonly reported health problem globally, and migraine is huge. It's the seventh largest cause of disability globally and uh, neck headache affects about 
uh, 5% of all adults globally at some stage. And then interestingly, a headache type that's increasing in prevalence is a type that's actually called medication overuse headache. And that's a headache that occurs more and more often as people treat headache more and more often with many of the headache drugs available. How do you do a diagnosis or how do you determine what is a headache from what is a migraine? There is very specific criteria that is used to uh, diagnose individual headache types. So, for example, the diagnosis of tension headaches, tension headaches are described as more often both sides of the head. They tend to feel like a pressing or a tightening feeling on both sides of the head. They tend to be milder or more moderate in intensity, uh, and uh, they don't have any associated complications that migraines have. Migraines, for example, tend to be a more severe headache, They're on one side of the head more often. Uh, And migraines can really restrict your physical activities and can be associated with nausea or vomiting. So how do people normally manage their headaches? One of the great challenges with headache treatments is, is the management of them. People either take drugs for an acute attack or a lot of people take medications to, to prevent their headaches, particularly if they're prone to to headaches on a very frequent basis. Over time, people who who are using headache medications, many of the headache medications more and more often, run the risk of actually increasing their frequency of headaches as a direct result or consequence of of the overuse of these medications. So there's a range of healthcare providers that can be involved in headache management. Um, Most often, people would first consider going to a GP, and in many countries that might even be followed by a neurologist where a headache is becoming complicated and difficult to manage. But other headache providers could could involve counsellors and psychologists. And then, of course, you have allied health professionals like chiropractors, osteopaths and physiotherapists who are providing a physical treatment or what we call manual therapy. So this comes into the area of chiropractic. Why is that relevant in the area of headaches and migraines? Uh, Headaches is about the third most common reason people tend to seek chiropractic care. After low back pain and neck pain, headaches is the third most common reason. And there's certainly a growing body of research to support why they would do that. We're seeing basic science research that is showing an association between our neck and problems with the muscles and joints in the neck and uh, and the common recurrent headaches such as tension headache and migraine. And uh, we're also seeing, for example, studies showing that the greater the neck disability, the more often many of these people will get a migraine. Uh, and in fact, many people with migraine report having neck pain either just before the migraine or during the migraine or having neck pain immediately after the migraine. So we're certainly seeing a lot of evidence that the neck problems with the muscles and joints of the neck can be involved in many of these headaches. So what exactly does the chiropractor do in this situation? How are they helping the person who's experiencing that headache? Most often the treatment is called manual therapy. So this is described as hands-on treatment, primarily targeting the neck and shoulders, sometimes even the the joint and muscles around the jaw as well. But typically uh, it might involve spinal manipulation, uh, joint or spinal mobilization or massage techniques uh, or other 
musculoskeletal techniques uh, involving the hands and involving the effect you can have on, on muscles and, uh, and joint articulations. Might people seek chiropractic headache treatment in the same way for migraines? The research to date is showing certain manual therapy methods work better for migraines and other manual therapy methods might work better for neck headache and tension headache. Uh, For example, with tension headache, the techniques that we use uh, tends to be more focused on the muscles, uh, massage, working on trigger points, stretching muscles uh, around the neck and shoulders. Whereas we're seeing with migraine and cervicogenic headache, in other words, neck headache, that for example, spinal manipulation is more likely to be effective. So as, as research continues, what we're seeing is manual therapy isn't necessarily effective in turning off a headache when you're in the middle of a headache, but a course of manual therapy or hands-on treatment of the neck is showing results that can influence future headaches and the repeating of headaches, so what we call preventative treatment. Craig Moore, PhD candidate in the Faculty of Health at UTS, speaking with Jake Morecambe. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Papua New Guinea is a four-hour plane trip from Sydney, yet when it comes to the difference in maternal and child mortality, it's worlds apart. Australia's infant mortality is 3.3 per 1,000 births, In PNG, it's over 60. Part of this is due to poor access for care for women during pregnancy. For the last four years, the World Health Organization's Collaborating Centre for Nursing, Midwifery and Health Development at UTS has tried to improve the education and number of midwifery graduates in PNG. The initiative has recently wrapped up. Alison Moores was part of the program and has been looking at how successful it has been. If you, I guess if you compare it to here, there is very little resources. You might work in a clinic with a tin shed and no running water. Um, Women walk for miles in labour to come for care and uh, often stay at home because it's too hard to get to a health centre. So it's, they're not birthing in a hospital as we imagine today? No, some do. Those that live in cities do, but 80% of the population are in rural areas and so about 50 to 60% of those still deliver at home because it's too hard to get to a health centre. Um, and those that deliver at home have very little skilled help and that's where the problems are, are occurring. Why are there so few midwives in PNG? Um, I think over the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of problems with trying to educate midwives in the first place. And... Uh, we had problems with the quality of their education and so many of them were graduating and not being able to register. Um, And they had to be taken out of the nursing workforce. So uh, midwifery at the moment in PNG is a a postgraduate qualification and and it's very expensive to study in PNG and for them to leave their families and uh, find the money to study was really difficult. You were part of the Maternal and Child Health Initiative. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, the Maternal Child Health Initiative was a four-year program that uh, UTS were contracted to 
to supply um, Australian and international midwives to work alongside the midwifery educators in Papua New Guinea to help improve and strengthen the capacity of the PNG educators to teach. Did you do anything with the education offered to midwives to make it easier? The Australian government did. They chipped in with scholarships for students to come and study, so they paid for tutorial costs and they also improved the facilities, um, reference books, libraries, classrooms, dormitories were all improved to make it easier for students to come and the students were given a, a scholarship, a bursary to come. You've recently looked at research looking at whether these students went on to get jobs. Mm. What were the results? Yeah, well, we found 90% of the graduates, um, particularly from the first two years, they were the two years I focused on, 90% were working as midwives with um, about another 3% working as educators and teaching others. So it was really exciting. What about the extra 7%? Um, Some of them returned to nursing jobs that they were in and we found out of 174 graduates, only three or four, four were not working at all. And these midwives are working, but are they having an impact? Yeah, well, um, certainly anecdotally they are. I've got wonderful stories of graduates working in very isolated, rural and remote positions who are saving lives and they are noticing the difference. Women are coming because there's a skilled midwife at their local health centre where before the women stayed at home because they might turn up at a health centre and there'd be no one there that could help them. So now there's a skilled midwife who can provide the care that they need and the women are responding. Papua New Guinea is due to have another survey of its health and its demographics in the next year or so and that will tell us for sure whether mortality and morbidity is improving but the graduates are certainly telling us that they're noticing the difference themselves. Currently with the most recent statistics, what are the child and maternal mortality rates like? Mm, it's one of the worst in the world, um, four hours north of, of Sydney. Um, four or five women die every day in childbirth in PNG. And uh, it's 773 deaths per 100,000 births. It's, you know, and we have about four per 100,000 births in Australia. So... Um, it's shocking. It's second in, in the Asian Pacific. It's second highest to Afghanistan. So it gives you kind of a um, bit of quantifiable, you know, PNGs are not in a war zone and uh, mostly it's the isolation of the women and the, the difficulty in accessing healthcare that uh, is the main problem. So the more midwives we can get out into rural and isolated areas, the more likely it is that women will get the care they need. In in PNG, a lot of women are birthing in rural areas. Did these midwives go on to work in rural areas? Yeah, we found 40% of those that responded are working in rural areas. And um, that was about what we thought and what we were hoping for. Um, Because there's been a huge shortage of midwives for the last 10 or 15 years, there are still a fair few working in hospitals, but in in major towns, but they are still, you know, critically short of midwives as well. So I think it's going to take some time yet before the uh, country's got enough midwives. Um, the, The initiative helped to more than double the population of midwives in PNG, but they probably need that many again.
Is the program continuing? No, the funding's unfortunately uh, just finished in December last year and uh, we are just finishing the evaluation of the program at the moment and making recommendations that it will continue but it's all a bit up in the air with overseas funding at the moment. Assuming that the funding doesn't continue, does PNG have the resources to continue to build their midwifery workforce? I think the biggest strength they have is in the capacity of the educators. We have, I think the initiative has has improved the capacity of Papua New Guinea educators. Um, They are skilled and enthusiastic and ready to continue, but they do need the financial support to still attract students to the course, to have the resources to keep training. And if the funding does continue, what's next? The curriculum is being reviewed this year and they're hoping to extend the length of the course for midwives. The feedback that the students and the graduates gave was that there was a lot of information packed into a 12-month program and the international standards for midwifery is an 18-month program and that seems to coincide. So at the moment they're putting an 18-month program through the regulatory bodies to improve the education even further. Many of the graduates want to go on to be teachers, but they need um, to be taught how to be teachers. And so there's opportunities there to develop education for them to teach the next generation of midwives in PNG. Alison Moores, midwifery researcher in the WHO Collaborating Centre at UTS. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. You can also tweet us at 2SER. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, which is great, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. And remember to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes if you enjoyed what you heard today. I'm Ellen Liebeter. See you next week for more.